Well, hi there, and welcome to the Black Friday edition of the Governance Update from VLGA Connect. Stephen Cooper from the VLGA and Civic Mind. Hello, I just realised as we started recording, it's Friday the 13th. Chris, that is just eerie, and um, welcome to you too. So uh, we haven't got much to talk about this week. Elections are over. Um, Councillors are getting into the swing of things. What possible value can we add this week, Stephen? Such a quiet week in governance, Chris. We'll only fill in about 15 minutes today. Actually, we've had our first councillor resignation already. You'd be yeah, aware of that? I, I was aware of that, Chris, and, and that is unusual. Um, but I think one of the reminders is there's a process for everything. Um, there is now a vacancy. Steps are being taken to fill that vacancy. In the fullness of time, there will be another councillor elected. End of story. And it just shows you people's circumstances can change and people make the decisions they need to make. So at, uh, it's at Northern Grampians where there's already a by-election on foot, so now there'll be two Now there'll be two. And, yeah, good reminder, Chris, that everyone in this... Like, we're all human and things can happen. So, yes, be ready for that. So all of the results are in. The 76 of the 79 will probably unpack the stats a bit more with Catherine on the newsroom next week. But just a quick mention of the record turnout or the record result uh, in relation to the uh, gender balance on councils across the state. Terrific. And um, yeah, all props to uh, everyone involved in that campaign to get to 50% by, uh, by the next round. Um, I think um, the progress that's been made stellar and next week's newsroom with Catherine Arndt will be a cracking addition. Don't miss it. So at 43 point something yeah. percent, I think 50 percent is not uh, unachievable now because that's a big jump. And I could see that being replicated in four years time. Chris, the only thing I'd say, and, and Catherine will mention, the VLJ is partnering uh, with the University of Melbourne and La Trobe Uni on a really important piece of research. Um, I think a lot of the candidacy was fairly late in the term. Uh, if uh, many of those and other female candidates can get started early and start their campaigning and work early, I think 50% is definitely achievable, all strength to their arm. Now, with new councillors taking office, induction programs happening in uh, the coming weeks and months, You've decided to take a bit of an approach to the task of a new councillor. It's a bit like doing a doing a course, you know, except for company directors or something. You've got all of this required reading to do. So you've got a you've got a required reading or to do list for new councillors. I understand it, Stephen. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I, I've been thinking about this induction topic, um, obviously because the VLGA have a program with numerous councils, and we've already got bookings right through until February, March next year. Um, so it's really been exercising my mind too around what are the needs for a councillor that go beyond um, the mandatory induction requirement? And I sort of had three topics, Chris. Which one, where would you like to go first? Well, I think uh, one of the key topics being discussed at the moment, not just with councillors, but at senior executive level is this requirement for deliberative engagement to be embedded in the, in the community engagement practices of councils. Um, the reason it's really top of mind at the moment is that councils need to have a policy in place for this by next March. And obviously council laws need to be along for that journey. And that presents some, yeah. I don't want to say challenges, but some things that we really need to be uh, mindful of. And there's some real risks with that too around the deliberative engagement topic, Chris, um, in terms of sometimes we can get really tasky and miss the point. And I, like you, I've heard a number of CEOs express concern that the engagement tail will wag the council dog 
or that engagement may end up being a consultant's piece when we can spend money better elsewhere. So I always like the notion that if you've got a, a small problem, Chris, make it bigger. And, um, and in that light, I think it's a really good opportunity for councillors to think through where engagement sits in terms of their role overall as a councillor and what does that, and in fact, the role of the council, what does that actually mean? So, you know, we could start at uh, those principles of good governance in terms of what, how is a council expected to um, make decisions? What should it consider? Steve, this is a conversation that I've been having on various levels with councillors for probably 20 years now. This notion that councillors are elected to make decisions, but then they're also expected to engage with and consult more and more, it seems, with the community. And I know some are challenged by, well, why am I here? The community have put me here to make the decision. Why do I have to go and check with them at every step along the way? It is a concept that, that bears a lot of thinking about and, um, and understanding, doesn't it? Absolutely. And, and I think, too, that's where getting your head around um, the engagement framework, what level of the IAP2 framework are you moving in and engaging at? So you're more likely to, for example, be at the co-creation end in a, um, a community visioning kind of process. Maybe when you're doing design work and consulting, you're in the consultation end and you're not handing over the decision making, but getting for a council, getting its head around that topic um, is really important. Chris, the other thing too, though, in terms of the change, I think it's not going to get easier, but again, it requires a different mindset. So again, constantly remembering that the, the 2020 Act is a principles-based act. So it is less likely that there will be a stepwise process in the Act to tell councils how to do this. And, and we've talked about this, although not recently. I haven't said Yarri Ambiak for quite some time now, but whatever is in the Act needs to be able to be applied at the largest and at the smallest um, councils, depending on the resources available. So councils having a, an approach is really important. So that's number one. I think you've got a three-point reading list, haven't you? And the next one takes us down into the southwest of the state. Yeah. Can I just finish off that first one too, though, Chris? Because I think it is really important, that topic for councillors, and just taking another step from what you mentioned, around what's the role of the council in terms of the requirements of the Act, you know, to, um, to consider the best outcomes for community, including future generations, um, for councillors to consider the diverse needs of in and interests of um, the entire community, not just those who normally consult with us, needs to be overlaid with the desire at sometimes for individual councillors to be advocates for um, particular members of community. So councillors and council groups having a conversation around, well, am I considering a policy position for the whole community or am I actually just being, am I being, which is okay, you know, but if you're going to be an advocate for a particular group, I think it's worthwhile to actually articulate that that's what you're doing um, because as a consequence in terms of the defensible, whether a decision of the council is defensible on that basis and certainly those who don't agree might challenge it. So that's really the first one of my list of three, I suppose, Chris, to really talk through the role of the council. Really good points. Check section nine and section 28, I would say, of the Act for those points that uh, Stephen's just mentioned. I love that one about having regard to future generations. I think that's a really important distinction that they've brought into the Act 
in uh, 2020. And I think overlay that too with the, the different structures of councils, just because you're elected perhaps in a council where you have wards, you have to take the, into account the, the needs of the entire the community, entire not community. just the people in yeah. your ward. You've raised another issue that wasn't on my list, Chris, which is, of course, that the officers will get will um, prepare reports for council that address those implications, the sustainability implications the, um, of, of any particular decision. But it's also a good opportunity in coming months for councillors to engage with the CEO and the executive about what is the, the style of reporting that councils want. So, you know, if you're thinking, if as a councillor one was thinking that the reports are too long, that's a good opportunity to have that, con that conversation with the CEO. But of course, six or 12 months down the track, please don't complain that there's not enough information in the report. There's always a consequence for these things. All right. So um, now let's go to number two on your list, and that is take a look at Warrnambool. Yeah, Warrnambool was interesting. I, I presume, Chris, most people know that um, there was a clean sweep at Warrnambool. The, um, all of the former councillors, I think, I think five of the seven um, stood and none of them were successful. Um, I think that was the only clean sweep of incumbents not getting in, wasn't it, in the state? I think so. I think that's true. And look, we're not in Warrnambool. Um, there are others closer to there that can give a more detailed analysis of it. But I think it's reasonable to suggest that there are some lessons for councils um, across Victoria on this. Um, the first one being that, uh, and it's an old saying, disunity is death. And that where there is infighting and, you know, councillors at Warrnambool had been quite vocal about the fact that they differed on some key opinions that had spilled out into the community, um, that, that impacts on people's voting. Um, the second piece is that the community expects a level of probity and follow-up and there'd been a couple of issues that in, for whatever reason, hadn't been satisfactorily resolved in the views of the community. And the third one, and um, we've talked about this one before, Chris, but props to the report, the 2019 report on the employment cycle of the CEO by the local government inspectorate, that mm. the employment arrangements and the termination of the CEO has caused a significant amount of community angst, which is code for councillors. You've got one employment contract to manage, and that needs to be done in a business-like, respectful um, arm's length manner with um, layers of procedural fairness. Interesting observations, Steve, and I'm sure there'll be more coming out of this round of elections that we'll, uh, we'll come across and talk about in weeks to come. Last one on your list, uh, Operation Sandon is still ongoing. You think new councillors should be taking note of what's happening there? I think, and I think, Chris, anyone that gets the opportunity to either sit in or listen to the live stream of an IBAC inquiry, it's wise to do that because we can have a view that we can articulate with our friends and colleagues, but would it stand up in an IBAC inquiry is a pretty useful test. Um, what's emerged this week um, is probably a bit beyond the remit of local government because it's been talking about um, political donations of, of a large scale and... Um, attempts to politically influence. I think the reminder I had though um, was more so in the context of gifts and hospitality to councillors. Um, you know, that councillors would have been presented with uh, the information in the act about disclosure of gifts, um, you know, the fact that materiality is significant, that, you know, maybe a coffee cup of coffee doesn't matter. But if the person offering you a cup of coffee 
um, has a planning application on foot and or maybe is a regular property developer, um, maybe it would be a good opportunity to sort of pause and reflect on why you're being invited to that cup of coffee. Um, mm. Certainly, most councils have policies for councillors around engagement with parties to planning applications. Most would have a requirement that if you're meeting um, with a developer or an applicant um, for a planning permit, that a councillor should take a member of the planning staff with them in accordance with the protocols that the organisation has in relation to councillor officer interaction. Um, these things go along fabulously until they go wrong. And then when they go wrong, you know it. Indeed. All right. So I hope they've been taking notes, Steve. So um, deliberative engagement, understanding your role in the community engagement processes, take a look at Warrnambool, understand what's happened there and keep an eye on Operation Sandon. That'd be my summary. You've been taking notes, Chris. Thank you. I have actually, literally. Good work. That's been really useful. I might, uh, I might do that myself as a bit of homework. So Steve, uh, we should let you go. Anything special planned for Black Friday? Yeah, I've got to say to you, Chris, that the age crosswords exercising my mind today, and because it's Black Friday, uh, I can alert the listeners to the fact that 16 down, the clue is hauntingly delicate. Mm. Is this the quick or the cryptic? That's the quick one, and it's ethereal. Oh. So um, my Black Friday task will be to finish the crossword. Might do <laughs> good, good, good luck with that, um, and thank you for the lesson. We'll talk to you again very soon on the Governance Update. Can't wait. Thanks, Chris. Steve Cooper joining us. Thank you for joining us. Uh, keep watching VLGA Connect. The newsroom will come to you early next week right here on our VLGA Connect channel.